I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Sidney Poitier. We first talk about him being brought up on Cat Island, and then his moves to Miami and then New York City. Talk a little bit about his story and how he got some breaks into the acting business, some of the racial dynamics within the acting world, his place in changing America, and some various views that he had, and then we end the episode talking a little bit about the end of his life. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, today we're going to be talking about Sidney Poitier, and I have—I don't have an idea of who he is, and so I'm sure that I'm not the only person. I know nobody really tells me like, hey, yeah, I don't know who these people are either, but I'm just assuming, and so... Katina Garen, help me out. Who who is Sidney Poitier? What has he done? I want to learn about him. He's one of the greatest actors of all time, and he's an activist. I mean, he just is a trailblazer. Did so many first as a as a black man in film. But take it away, Garen. Yeah, and it's hard to have an appreciation now for what that means for him to have been one of the greatest actors of all time and what it means. And we'll talk about some of his acting career as we go through the episode. But I think in the modern context, we don't really realize how much he had to overcome to be great in acting and to, and to chase down the opportunity to show that he could do it. So let's like start by just going to the beginning of his story and seeing how his character was formed. But then we're going to see how he overcame some incredible odds and incredible obstacles in order to become a great actor. So he was born on Cat Island in the Bahamas, which is a 46-mile-long island. It was three miles wide. And just picture him as a child. He had free roam of the island. Like I grew up in kind of more rural towns where my sisters and I were allowed to roam and we were allowed to explore but we didn't have anything like this. He could go anywhere he wanted on this entire 46-mile-long island. And in his autobiography, he describes how as a child, he would just kind of explore and climb trees to grab the fruit down from the top and found how to get sustenance from the land. His family was relatively poor, but he describes that poverty on Cat Island looked different than poverty as we think of it. His family didn't have money, but there was like a barter system that existed on the island. Everyone knew everyone, and they kind of worked together to barter for what they needed. And, I mean, they were in a tropical paradise. So it was land that, in our context, like one little piece of it would cost a million dollars. And yet, so you're poor, but with this irony that you're living in paradise. And that's where he grew up. He grew up with a family that loved him and cared for him in a community where everyone knew him and where he was safe to roam anywhere. Also in the Bahamas, there wasn't racism in the way that there was in America. He talks about how there was some elements of racism, but it was a lot more subtle, which allowed his character and identity to form in that safe haven or relatively safe haven. But then it did create some culture shock when he eventually came to Miami, as we'll see. Okay. Uh, One quote that he has when he's describing his life on Cat Island, this kind of just gives a a taste of what it was like. He says, On that tiny spit of land that we call Cat Island, life was indeed very simple and decidedly pre-industrial. Our cultural authenticity extended to having neither plumbing nor electricity, and we didn't have much in a way of schooling or jobs either. In a word, we were poor. But poverty there was very different from poverty in a modern place characterized by concrete. On such an island, poverty wasn't the depressing, soul-destroying force that it can be under other circumstances. And then he, he talks about, in this next quote, just about his connection to his family and what it looked like, the kind of intimacy and safety he had with them. He says, I'm on the porch of our little house on Cat Island in the Bahamas. 
It's the end of the day and the evening is coming on, turning the sky and the sea to the west of us, bright burnt orange, and the sky and the sea to the east of us, a cool blue that deepens to purple and then black. In the gathering darkness, in the coolness of our porch, my mother and father sit and fan smoke from green palm leaves they're burning to shoo away the mosquitoes and the sand flies. And as she did so often, when I was small, my sister Teddy takes me in her arms and rocks me to sleep. While she's rocking me in her arms, she too is fanning the smoke that comes from the big pot of green leaves being burned. And she fans the smoke around me as I try to go to sleep in her arms. So here's this boy in this kind of, I mean, there's these movies that sometimes come out about the person who's dropped into a world that, you know, they'll like transport into the future and they're from the past and they'll get dropped into this world that's like crazy to them and that they can hardly fathom. And that that's kind of Sidney Poitier. He was in this innocent upbringing where there were no cars, there was no electricity. He talks a little later about how when he heard about cars and something that could move faster than a horse, he like didn't even have a reference point for what that would be. And then he just gets dropped into this world that's so unfamiliar. Yeah, I'm going to ask, how did, how does he go from Cat Island, the Bahamas? To- mm-hmm. So the big transition that kind of led to him coming over to the States was his family. They were tomato farmers, and the tomato farming industry kind of went under. And so his parents moved the family to Nassau, which is the largest urban center in, in the Bahamas. So then living in Nassau, to show what his life was like, his family was still very poor, His father started to sell loose cigars to some of the tourists that would come through. And his mother would actually crush rocks. She would gather stones and manually crush the stones into gravel that she would then sell to contractors that would come through occasionally. And this wasn't just something she would do. There was women throughout the neighborhood that would crush stone into gravel just manually to sell to these contractors. And so his family was doing what they needed to to get by and provide. But it was really tight and they were relatively poor. He would go to the movies with friends sometimes and, and this kind of almost flash forward to what he would become. He and his friends would start to act out all the parts to the movies that they would uh, would see. And then in, in Nassau, racial lines weren't as rigid as in America, but there was still some white supremacy. Sydney once made a friend at 11 who was a white boy and they would get along fine, but then the boy would sometimes make little comments that would be racist. And at one point, the boy said to Sydney that, just kind of matter-of-factly, that his life, the, the white boy's life, would be easier because of the color of his skin and that Sydney would have a hard time. And Sydney, up until then, didn't have a, really a concept for that being a thing. So he pushed back and was like, rejected it. He was like, no way. And he like fought back at this boy for it and had a little bit of a falling out with him. And then a, a couple of years later, Sydney actually got a crush on a mixed-race girl who had a white brother. And when the white brother found out, he was abusive towards Sydney. He actually rode a bike by and just kind of punched him in the face, just completely unexpectedly, and then rode off. And Sydney tried to chase him but couldn't catch him. So he faced these subtler forms. I mean, it was less systemic, the racism that was there. Black people had the opportunity to be doctors and lawyers. Like there were professionals who were black. And so he had this paradigm for black people can be and become anything, but there was also still racism. There's still white supremacy, but it was different than than what he would experience in America. But his, his parents started to realize that he was maybe moving in a direction where he was falling in with some kids that were getting into trouble and they started to realize, I think also just they struggled to provide for him um, because of their relative poverty. And they had a son in Miami. And so they thought maybe it'd be better for him to go to Miami with his brother, who's about 10 years older. That way he'll, he can be taken care of there and he can also have more access to maybe some education and stuff like that. So they they moved into Miami, and, and he describes the anticipation of that move. And he says in this quote, When the moment to step on board finally arrived, I was almost too excited, too anxious, too filled with curiosity and wonder about the world I would find beyond the horizon. From rumors, hearsay, and snatches of adult conversation never meant for my ear, I had concluded that whatever world I would find waiting for me must surely be like no place I had ever dreamed. I had heard that there were real electric lights there. No kerosene lamps like the ones everyone on Cat Island used. Running water inside houses, coming in through pipes under the ground. With a twist of a handle, water would come, as much as you want or as little as you want. 
I had heard that sworn to as a fact, yet how could this be? And more wild than that, cars, they said. A sight to behold. They said some people somewhere in the world beyond the horizon had made something called a car which could run faster than a horse, which was the fastest thing I knew. What year is this now that they're in Miami? 1940s, I think it was when he transitioned. Okay. So, and, and he describes that right here. He talks about Miami and what he found waiting for him there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just picture you go in knowing nothing, but with the excitement of like, wow, there's this world that is amazing and full of wonder. Mm-hmm. And then he got there and rather than the wonder that he maybe would have hoped for, what he found was Miami. So he says, Miami shared the climate and lifestyle of the Caribbean, but its culture and mores were of the American South, 1940s Jim Crow style. And he says, nothing prepared me to surrender my pride and self-regard sufficiently to accept these humiliations. As I entered this world, I would leave behind the nurturing of my family and my home. But in another sense, I would take their protection with me. The lessons I had learned, the feelings of groundedness and belonging that had been woven into my character there would be my companions along the journey. So he carried that foundation of an identity that was shaped by something other than Jim Crow and the humiliations of Jim Crow. He, he had this concept that black people were just as good and could be anything. But he carried that into a world where black people were routinely insulted as a mode of life by white people. And, and just, we've talked about this before, but just to remind listeners, even some, things as simple as the mores that he refers to there, that in that era, black people universally had to refer to white people by Mr. Last Name, yep, Mrs. Last Name. And to do anything different was a slight that could get you fired. There's stories in an upcoming episode that we've researched where there's a, a teacher, a longstanding teacher, that was fired on the spot for correcting a white school board person who, for, uh, on just like saying a different name, was a fireable offense. These little slights to these cultural norms that they had established to enforce segregation, to enforce white supremacy. And then white people would refer to black people by their first name. So there's this asymmetry. And then white people would also refer to black people just routinely as boy, no matter how old they were. Like a young white teenager would refer to an old white man as boy. Oh, black man as boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or the N-word. And those were like the three ways that white people would refer to black people. And and this was even instituted in in like utility bills of the time would be addressed to the first name of black customers and to the last name, like Mr. or Mrs. last name of white customers. So it was just entrenched in every aspect of their society, this continual reminder of your status and of what you could be and what you were allowed to be. And that fell upon Sidney, but it fell upon him after his critical years had already passed and after much of his identity had already formed. He describes it, he says, quote, I'm a good person and nothing you say can undo that. You can harp on this color crap as much as you want, but because of the way I was raised, I don't have a receptor that's going to take in any of that. Of course, over time, osmosis brings a lot of that sewage to you and some of it does seep in, you know. So he describes it, he's like, both describes it as he already was formed and it didn't seep in, but it also, it kind of did. It also, like, even if you know who you are, how can you stand in the face of that kind of constant belittlement and humiliation and not be a little bit affected by it? So he had this crazy police encounter and he was across town on the white side of town running an errand and he came to a store that was closed. He was going to run to this dry cleaner to get some clothes and they were closed so he had to get back but the buses had stopped running and so he was going to hitchhike and he decided he was going to just look for black drivers and only hold his thumb out if there were black drivers so he started walking home looking at the cars and would hold his thumb out but then he accidentally misidentified a driver and held his thumb out for a white driver who turned out to be an undercover police officer. And so it was two officers and they pulled him over. They turned on their lights and they pulled him over into an alley where that was just isolated and he was outside of the public view of anyone else. And then he heard these police officers deliberating with one another whether to kill him. He could hear them talking about him using racial epithets and just deciding whether or not to kill him there. Hmm. 
And then one of the officers, it sounded like, was leaning more towards we should just kill him. And the other one was leaning more towards let's not do that. So the driver ultimately said, to kind of settle the argument, said to, to Sydney, do you think you can walk home without looking back once? Because if you look back one time, we're going to kill you. So then Sydney said yes, and they let him go, and he started to walk home. But the entire, it was 50 blocks, the entire 50 blocks, he didn't look back once, and he could glance, sideways glance, and see the car following him the whole way home. He could see the reflection of the car on the windows of stores and shops that he would pass. I mean, the trauma of going 50 blocks, knowing that there's basically a gun trained to your head, that if you do something so simple as looking back, that they would kill him. Mm -hmm. And I just want to pause on that for a second, because this is not the first story like this that we've come across. We've done profiles of, you know, at this point, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 people, biographies from black history. And this has been a theme in the majority of those, the police brutality or the injustice in policing. And I just want to point out to the audience that we are not cherry picking stories. Like I had no idea before coming to his biography that this would be a feature of his story too. Like we don't cherry pick stories that have police cast in a bad light. It's just such a common feature of the biographies of black people throughout history that it comes up in basically every profile we do. I think I I thought through it and it's basically, I think all but two of them that we've done so far Mm. have had significant police injustice. I just want to like pause on that and reflect on that and say that as a white person, it can seem far off and kind of made up because we don't encounter police the way that black people do. It's not something that we face in our lives. But this is a real reality of the lives of so many black people. And the majority of people that we've covered have had this as a part of it. So Sydney, getting back into his story, he wanted to get out of Miami as fast as he could. And he initially, he just took his what little money he had and just tried to make it up north. He just tried to like take a bus and go north, but he ran out of money Mm. in Tampa and his brother had to come pick him up. So then he worked a summer job up in Georgia and he, over the course of the summer, raised $39. And so at the end of the summer, he was like, this is my chance. Let me go make it out of here and try to find a life somewhere else. And so he went to the bus station and this is kind of crazy to me, just how much of history because as you'll see later, he changed history. And how much of history hinged on this random moment. Mm. He went up to the bus counter and said, basically, what's the next bus out of here? And the, the, the next two buses were both local, but the next one that was going a long distance was to New York City. And so he bought a ticket. And that's why he ended up in New York. Mm. It was just the random lottery of the fact that that's where the next bus was going. And at that time, he didn't know he wanted to be an actor. He wasn't pursuing that. It wasn't even a thought in his head. But so much of history then hinged on this random yeah. moment when he's at a bus counter saying, where's the next ticket out of here? Yeah, that's interesting. So he went to New York and he was bedazzled by the subway. He'd never had a concept for something like that. And trains that go under the city, he thought that was crazy. And he worked various jobs just trying to make ends meet. He worked as a dishwasher was one of the main ones. And he was also went through some of the race riots that were part of history at that time. He actually was shot in the leg at one point and had to play dead in order to escape. One of the white mobs that was being abusive. What year is he in New York City now? Yeah, I mean, this is soon, I mean, probably still the 40s. Yeah. I don't have the year, but this was just a couple years after. Miami. Miami. So then he joined the army. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, New York was really, really cold. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was the polar opposite of, you know, the environment he grew up in. Polar is a good word there. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Pun intended. Polar opposite of the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine. Mm -hmm. So he was miserable. Yeah, he had no idea to even expect it. And then it started getting colder and colder and colder. And he's like, what is happening? And yeah, he like barely made it through the first winter there. Joined the army in order to have a warm place to stay, but then he intentionally got himself kicked out of the army after it started to warm up again. <laughs> um, 
But then he was like afraid of the next winter and he actually tried to raise money to go back to the Bahamas because he was like, I do not want to go through another New York winter, especially because he was still kind of in poverty at that point in New York. He didn't have the ability to even get a good jacket to, to make it through. He was miserable. My goodness. So he looked for random jobs in order to try to raise money. And I think at that point he was actually had a foot out the door, but he came across an ad as he hunted for jobs for the American Negro Theater. And he decided, well, I've done this other random gig work. Like, why don't I try this? And so he went and he tried out and he was immediately rejected. (laughs) (laughs) He could barely read the script. He had some minimal education, but he struggled to get through the script itself. And so he wasn't even able to try to act. He He didn't even start school until he was 11. Mm -hmm. So So he he just immediately was rejected. And the man who rejected him said, stop wasting people's time and get yourself a job as a dishwasher or something. Oh, wow. Which (laughs) Sidney, at that point, he actually was a dishwasher. Right. Here's this man insulting him, basically saying, you're no better than to just be a dishwasher. And then Sydney was like, wait, does, how does he know? Right. And so it became this moment where he wanted to show, I'm more than that. I'm more than this menial role that this world is trying to confine me into. And I know it and I'm going to prove it. And so he decided right then and there that he would prove this man wrong, yeah. that he would become an actor. And it's so funny because before that, he didn't have any plans to become an actor. But that moment shaped his life mission and his goal. And it was, again, just this random almost coincidence that he could have seen an ad for any other type of job. And who knows what else he would have gone on to do. But and I think even some of the figures that we've talked about that we've talked on the show, that very same kind of a similar event, someone just saying like, what are you doing? Or no, or just really kind of putting mm-hmm. a front to somebody mm-hmm. to stop them from doing whatever X, Y, Z thing. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to show like there's some there's something different about some people. And it's, it's cool. You know, I don't know where this is going to. You keep saying that he changed history. So I'm just, I'm laughing at that because it's like, oh gosh, I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to be that. <laughs> wouldn't want to be the teacher that sparked that, you know, in the bad way. Mm-hmm. That that's maybe this this guy's most important contribution to history was insulting Sidney Poitier. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or even like you know Jordan not making his high school team or whatever, and right, you know all these people that just didn't make it or mm-hmm. were told no. It's just ooh, I'd be or dropped out of school or mm-hmm. kicked mm-hmm. out of school or yeah, or like Malcolm X's teacher who told mm-hmm. him like that he had to be realistic about being an N word. And then that became the drive for him to... Or Carter G. and Carter G. Woodson's story. Mm Yeah. Yep. Man, it's Being told black people have no history. These teachers, it's like part of me wants these people to... (laughs) Yeah, I don't want that to happen. But it's also like I'm sure it crushed as far more souls than it. Like there's a type of person who pushes back against that, but there are so many people who probably just were crushed by it. And for many black people being told like you have to be realistic and just work menial jobs many of them just did yeah that's a good point i really so teachers don't just try to crush the souls of your students don't crush souls students or teachers (laughs) Mm -hmm. but in sydney's case i think especially because he already came from a place where he had people who loved him and believed in him he knew this isn't right this isn't who i am so he fought at that point to learn to read, and he did so with such determination that it was noticed by a Jewish man who saw him working super hard to try to read and decided, I'm going to help this guy out. And so this guy tutored him and taught him some of the basics of reading, and pretty quickly he came back to the acting class, and this time they basically struck a deal where he got some lessons in exchange for being a janitor for them. So he kind of bartered with them to get his foot in the door. And through that, he ended up becoming the understudy for a part and then got a break when the actor who he was an understudy for missed an opening night of a play at the same time that there was a casting director in attendance in the crowd. And so Sydney had this opportunity to go out and act. And the casting director was impressed with him 
and that kind of started to open more doors. He he gave Sidney a role in one of his own plays, and that that play kind of crashed. It got bad critical reviews, but the reviewers actually did like Sidney. Right. It's funny because in his autobiography, he did not feel good about his performance, but apparently the critics did like it. So then he's an actor. Yeah, but there weren't many roles for black actors at that time. Absolutely. And the roles that there were weren't necessarily all that lucrative. So he still had to work other jobs as a dishwasher still and do other kind of menial work. But he had his foot in the door. So he'd go to London and South Africa and, you know, have roles and act. But then there would be a lull and then he'd be back to dishwashing Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He opened a restaurant, a ribs restaurant with a friend. And, and, and I, honestly, that's, that's the life of, of an artist or, you know, an actor. People think that people just wake up and they're going to act. And then they're going to, like most actors and people who are creatives, they do other things. They work in restaurants. They, you know, they do other things because the work isn't always consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And especially for a dark-skinned Black man from Jamaica, you know, probably with an accent at that time. Mm-hmm. I could imagine, you know, that the pickings were slim. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Not a lot of roles. And even the roles that he did get offered sometimes, he didn't want to take because a lot of the roles that were available to black people in those days had elements of racism in them. And he just kind of refused to take those roles. Yeah. He felt like they were beneath him. Mm-hmm. So he passed up opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or so, so-called opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So later on, he reflected back on what motivated him and what drove the roles he would select. And a big theme of it was that he wanted to honor his parents and live up to the foundation that they had built for him. And so later on as, as a author now, he reflected back on this and said, because I've always believed that my work should convey my personal values, as an author, I don't have to look far to find storylines that illustrate points I wish to make. When I got to New York and when I got to Hollywood, for whatever reason or by whatever stroke of luck, I was given the tremendous opportunity of doing work that could reflect who I was. And who I was had everything to do with Reggie and Evelyn. Those are his parents. And each cigar sold and each rock broken. That's how I've always looked at it, that my work is who I am. I decided way back at the beginning, back when I was still washing dishes at a barbecue joint in Harlem, that the work I did would never bring dishonor to my father's name. I do what I do for me and for my wife and children, of course, and I do it out of a certain professional ego drive and ambition like everyone else. But everything I do is also for Reggie and Evelyn. I love that so much. Yep. And that kind of became a foundation or a filter that drove him to take to turn down certain roles that maybe other people would have taken. And that, ironically, actually is what opened the doors for him. Mm-hmm. He had a big breakthrough that came, not from accepting a role, but from turning it down. The big time agent that he kind of had this, started to form this connection with courted Sydney for a janitor role. This role of playing a janitor who worked at a casino. And Sydney passed up on the opportunity. And the casting director was like, why? It's not, it, it doesn't have raci- racist stereotypes. It's kind of like a three dimensional, it's like a sympathetic view of the janitor. But the janitor in the role was passive and wasn't somebody who Sydney could relate to because Sydney was someone who, in that situation, would have fought for himself. And so he passed up on the role and it was, it perplexed the agent. It's like, why would you pass up on, on what is, to my mind, a good role and it pays well? But the agent was so perplexed and he mulled over it for months after that. And he was like, I have to find out why he passed up on that role and what is making him tick. So he came and circled back with Sydney months later, I think six months later. And he was like, why? Why did you do that? And was so intrigued by it that he asked to become Sydney's agent. And that is actually what opened up doors for him to do much more with his acting career. Wow. So Sidney then got a role as a doctor in a movie called No Way Out in 1950, which was unusual for black people to have opportunities to play... Professional. Professionals. Yeah. Yep. And he, he, he started to cultivate, because he would turn down roles that were more menial, he started to cultivate a persona 
that was uh, went beyond the stereotypes that usually were the limits of what black people could do in film. So Sidney got a role as a doctor in the movie No Way Out in 1950. He played a priest in Cry of the Beloved Country. He played a student in the Blackboard Jungle. His character helped to reform a group of teenage bad boys. And in Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, he played a driver. But the movie came into his home and showed his family and life, something basically unprecedented in Hollywood. Like he got to have dimension and layers and humanity in a time where black people were often typecast, used as props or used as accessories to the greater white story. Mm-hmm. So he broke down some of those barriers. And let's just kind of talk a little bit about the racial dynamics in acting at that time and some of what that looked like and the obstacles they and, had to And what's the time frame again here? This is more probably around the 50s and yeah. 60s. So 50s, 60s film yeah. industry. By the, by, yeah, by the mid to late 60s is when he, his most famous movies were that he got Academy Awards for and everything. Yeah. So his, uh, his film career kind of was leading up to that okay. pinnacle point. Yeah. But as he was getting started, there were a few roles that he basically was asked to take a loyalty oath in order to get the role itself. He had to basically agree beforehand that he was not going to say anything that would... Basically, that that he wouldn't associate with... Because he was starting to do the work of activism. Mm -hmm. And he, Marshall King, Harry Belafonte was another actor, a singer who was from the islands, and they became very good friends, and they did a lot of work with Dr. King and the civil rights movement. So these Hollywood executives executives would try to make him take a loyalty oath that he wouldn't associate with civil rights activists, and he refused to do so. He petitioned with other black actors for more representation and got blacklisted. But he was such a good actor, he was sought after, but they, you know, wanted to contain and control. And so he refused to do so and assumed he would lose the role, saying, I would far rather wash dishes and work over a grill any day than sign a loyalty oath I considered repugnant. But then they would give him the roles anyway. Mm-hmm. I love this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that he was willing to give it up in order to maintain his ideals. He was so good at acting that they ultimately conceded and, and gave him the roles anyways. Yeah. He was so morally convicted to honor his parents and to honor his heritage, mm-hmm. his culture as a as a black man. Yeah. And it and it goes to show that the Hollywood executives, you know, what they were fighting for wasn't worth it, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they backed down. In another interesting story, Sidney played a role on television, and it was a black and white role, like black and white TVs. And he, in the story, was he had a wife who was white passing. She was black, but she looked white. And because he was black with this woman who looked to be white in those days, that caused this huge outcry. The station got flooded with letters and hate mail from angry white people because they thought it was depicting an interracial marriage. Yeah, they thought the woman was white. Yeah, even though she wasn't. <laughs> but the, the appearance of that could spark that kind of fury. It's just a reminder of the world that this was set in and how, like, what he was overcoming, the way that racism was so dominant in, in that context. Yeah, and even interracial marriage, I think a lot of people nowadays are, you know, including myself before we did that interracial marriage episode, episode. A while back, which is great. If you if if you're probably like, what's the big deal? I mean, I you know, this isn't that big of a deal. But man, it was a huge deal. And I think if if you know, we're we're kind of just going past it because it was a thing. But you should go back and listen to that episode because it it was. You're right. It it was infuriating to people on more levels than just one. And then he goes on. That was a precursor to him in the movie, being in the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where he was engaged to an actual white woman. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about how, as black actors, they, you know, black actors and actresses live this life where they may be on film, they, they're doing Hollywood roles, they may have wealth, but then when they're going out to live everyday life, like going to restaurants, they still were subject to segregation. So he, he was stopped once at a restaurant where the whole staff was black. 
The whole staff was black. And the maitre d' recognized him and said, Mr. Portier, I'm sorry, I could give you a table, but I'd have to put a screen around you. So I said, no, thank you. And I walked away feeling for the man, not feeling for myself because I was getting out of there. But I was also somewhat impervious because that wasn't me. The me they saw and wanted to put a screen around didn't exist to me. To African-Americans in 1955, this kind of insult was old hat. So I digested it and I went on with my life to fight other battles as I had to, but I never accommodated it. Mm. And then he even said, but I'm still an outsider and Hollywood saw me as such from the day I first arrived. Yeah, he went on to say, I live in Beverly Hills now, but I'm still an outsider and Hollywood saw me as such from the day I first arrived. Mm. So he had this fame and people would want to associate with him in a certain way. He had celebrities. Yeah. yeah, but there was these lines where it's like, you can be famous and recognized within this little box that we'll give you, but we don't want you to be our neighbor. Like, we don't want you to, to marry our daughter. We don't want you to fellowship at our church. There was just this place that he was given, but it was still with these boundaries from white supremacy. And that was very common during Jim Crow for black actors, singers, anyone with any celebrity. It was just very common for them to have those experiences, to perform in like a major venue, opera theater, or a major concert venue, but then have to come in through the kitchen or come through the back doors. Mm -hmm. To stay in a hotel, but have to stay, come through the back doors. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy. Can you imagine performing somewhere, but then you have to come through the back door Mm -hmm. I think I even heard a story that the black actress in Gone with the Wind wasn't allowed into the party after the movie won the Academy Award. That she was part of the cast, but not even allowed into the party. Yeah. And that was the kinds of slights that they would constantly face. And she went on to win an Oscar. Mm -hmm. So Sidney saw himself as a part of a larger picture of racial progress. And so let's kind of talk a little bit about how he used the roles that he was given and used the upper, like the platform that he had to push for change and to be a part of the changing of the system in Hollywood, providing opportunities for those who came after him. So he reflected on the actors who had come before him and later reflected on the, the actors who kind of came in his wake. And he had a lot of respect for the actors who came before him at the same time that he kind of grieved the fact that they had to oftentimes take menial and self-deprecating roles in order to open doors for people like Sidney to come after them. So he says, so I look back on those people who came before me and I owe them a debt, you know? Yes, sometimes I squirmed when I watched what they had to do. Sometimes I applauded when they said something that did really touch my heart. But I knew when I came to this screen how painful it had to have been sometimes to say some of these words and behave in some of those ways. And I'm referring to the, basically just the typecast stereotypes that they had to fit inside because that was all that was available for them. Mm. So I look back on them with respect and appreciation. They were my predecessors and they endured. They were the ones that life and nature and history required to walk that road. They gave birth to me because a part of what I do, a part of what Denzel Washington does, a part of what Angela Bassett does, is to respectfully reflect on the endurance of those people. We were and are as they would have wished to be, but we could not be as we are without their having paid a price. Amen. He recognized that they had to pave the way. And he kind of carried that baton and he continued to pave the way. Because even in his day, there was so much obstacles and obstructions to him having a career that actually showed his talent. And I mean, even the ability to have leading roles versus roles that were just kind of in the background. And he continued to take that baton and carry it. He said, back at Columbia in the early days, I was doing a picture called All the Young Men. The cast and crew combined were close to 100 people, and I was the only black person on the set. I qualified hands down as the quintessential outsider. Accordingly, I felt very much as if I were representing 15 to 18 million people with every move I make. Yes. 
and the the pressure of having that opportunity and knowing, man, I have this baton that others, forebears, have sacrificed to give me this opportunity. And then even then I have all these constraints that I, these lines I can't cross without losing my opportunity. I mean, mm. the studio's pressuring him to sign these <laughs> agreements not to agitate. And then having 15, 18 million people who are so underrepresented and trying to show white America a multidimensional, personified, humanized view of who black people are. And not just America, the world. The world was so tuned into American media and black people by and large were not portrayed well. And so he was, for the whole world, trying to show a humanized portrayal of Black dignity. Right. And then he's standing on the shoulders of those who came before him while carrying an entire culture on his back and then opens doors for others to come after him, other Black creatives and actors and people in the industry, like Jordan Peele, Barry Jenkins, Spike Lee, D. Rees. I mean, there's so many people that have come and, and we have this, this age of Black film acting and innovation and representation. We're taking ownership now. As he has passed away in January, we're on the heels of, it's just, it's just interesting, like he's passed on and now he's an ancestor. But as his doors, you know, as the doors of his life close, there's this big awakening and this opening of opportunity for black actors. And we have so far to come. I mean, when you even think of, think about a movie like Black Panther, when you think about Chadwick Boseman and the roles that he played, and he did the very same thing that Sidney did, there were roles that he would not take. Mm -hmm. And to think that Sidney paved the way for Chadwick, who, you know, literally walked in his footsteps. Denzel did the same exact thing. There were certain roles that he refused to take. But Sidney taking that stance and those like him taking that stance during the Jim Crow era opens the doors for other black male actors and black actresses to do the same. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's just very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he... He knew his place in the big picture. And there were people who kind of criticized him at the time for not doing more direct activism work. But I think part of his kind of personal mission was to show and depict to America a dignified view and vision of Black people and Black life. And he knew that like he had this specific role in the bigger picture. So he said, at one point he said, quote, Sammy Davis Jr., Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Lena Horne, Sidney Poitier, we weren't leading the charge. We weren't at the forefront getting our heads cracked open. No, our careers were a reflection of what was possible when attention was paid. So he strategically selected and pushed his roles into a place that would show black excellence and dignity. But he also, there was limits, kind of strict limits to what he, how far he could push. And so I think he has to be remembered in, in that light also of, of what was possible because of these constraints of he just would be blacklisted if he had done much more. But in 1967, when he played in the heat of the night and he played Detective Virgil Tibbs, which is one of my favorite movies, he slapped the snot out of a white man. And that was unheard of. In mm -hmm. 1967, mm -hmm. white man slaps him in the movie and he slaps him back like instinctively and I can't tell you even I, I wasn't born until years later but even watching that movie in the 70s because I loved watch I've watched to Sir with love I watched so many Sydney Portier movies growing up that slap was the slap heard around the world for black people mm -hmm. it was just a powerful brief moment and the way he stared like when he talks about carrying you know 15 to 18 million people like he literally carried us in in that slap <laughs> yeah and you're not and you're not just even those words you say you're not just making those up like that's a phrase that's been used of the slap the slap heard around the world like i've heard other people describe yes. it that way that that was a significant milestone in the black identity of seeing, because before that, for all through antebellum slavery, all through Jim Crow, 
to slap a white person would cause a lynching. You know what's crazy is I remember my great-great-grandmother who I've talked about that was born in 1899 and her father was enslaved. When we would go into town and we would see white people, I would look them in the eye. She would not. We would go, you know, we lived in the country. She would not. Can you imagine her seeing that moment in 1967? Mm. Like me seeing it is one thing and I'm born in the 70s. And I'm, I'm, it's reverberating in my soul in one way. But for her to be able to fight back the oppressor and stare him in the eye and to see a black man do it, when you're in 1967, when you still have to, you know, people are still stepping off the sidewalk mm-hmm. when, when they saw white people come coming their way. And in the 70s, like we're going to, to the market because we live in the country and I would see her whole disposition, like her head would go down. Mm-hmm. You know, because you, she grew up not being able to look white people in the eye. Mm-hmm. So yes, that mm-hmm. that moment was just so powerful. Yeah, for so many reasons. There's like so many layers. Yeah, that he pushed back, and it basically took this asymmetrical dynamic that had all the way up until that moment existed, where black people weren't basically allowed because of the the system of racism, weren't allowed to defend themselves, and then here he defended himself in this concussive moment. And that movie won an Academy Award. It won five Oscars, including Best Picture. So it wasn't just that he did it, but that the culture swallowed it. And it it created a shift. It definitely created a shift. And, you know, it kind of goes with this quote from him where he says, wherever there is a configuration in which there are the powerful and the powerless the powerful, by and large, aren't going to feel much of anything about this imbalance. After a while, the powerful become accustomed to experiencing the power to their benefit in ways that are painless. It's the air they breathe, the water they swim in. The powerless, who aren't swimming in that comfort, in that ease, look at that inequity quite differently from the guy who is across town who is in the comfort seat. That goes for Japanese and Chinese. That goes for African Americans and white Americans. That goes for Native Americans and white Americans. That goes for Hispanic Americans and white Americans. It goes for the British and their colonial possessions. However much prodding they get from the powerless, those in power just aren't inclined towards introspection or remorse. There's something inherently about power that has the comfort and privilege of not being able to see its own advantages because it's, yeah, it's like the the fish that's swimming in water and doesn't realize that it's in water. And if you're never confronted with the fact that you're in water because you just get to live in that comfort, like the power, the powerful oftentimes don't even see that the way that their power and comfort is upheld by standing on bodies beneath them. And how much they lean on the convenience and the comfort of it. Mm -hmm. So, Katina, tell us about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, basically Catherine Hepburn's, her character is bringing home a black man to meet her parents, Sidney Portier. And there's also a black woman who plays the maid or housekeeper. And just this black man showing up to this white household and them having to grapple with their bias and their prejudice. Mm-hmm. I mean, that movie is so... There are so many layers to this movie. When you think about how black men were accused of rape and sexual assault of white women and how that was the lie often that was told in order for black men to be lynched and for this black man to walk boldly across the threshold of a white household to a white patriarch, I mean, it's just, it was groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even the name of the movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right, plays on the drama of, wow, this is crazy. But it really was crazy. Like in those days for interracial marriage was only, what, that year? It's Loving versus Virginia? Like it was only then really even legalized or in the process of being legalized in many states. It was a groundbreaking thing. And this movie was also nominated for Best Picture. In the same year 
that Sydney won the best picture that in the heat of the night won best picture was in the same year that Guess Who's Coming to Dinner also came out and was also nominated for best picture. So he has two best picture films at the same time. And in this movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, it was again this cultural shift and milestone that was swallowed by the masses, that people loved it. Yeah. You, and, and it kind of changed the American conception, the American culture in a way where there was like a before and after. Yeah. And yeah. what's so cool about him as, as well, I mean, people, I don't think that main, the mainstream, because me as a kid growing up watching like all of his movies, I have an appreciation of him in the black exploitation movies. He played in a lot of the, there was the black power movement that happened in the late 60s and early 70s or throughout the 70s. And he played in several black exploitation films and many of them were comedies. So we got to see this element of Sidney Poitier that was absolutely freaking hilarious. But those are movies that are, you know, a part of the black power movement that the mainstream wouldn't know much about. They know more about his, you know, award-winning films. But he he was just the quintessential, like, I've always just been intrigued and just in love with Sidney Poitier because of what he did and what he represented on that television screen for me and for my people and for kids like us who looked at him and saw possibilities just by him playing whatever role and choosing to turn down roles because he wanted to show black people with dignity and with dimension. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wanted to honor his father and mother by being who he knew he was and showing that to the world. And in showing that to the world, he showed not just who he was, but who black people were and could be in a way that challenged and successfully toppled some of the stereotypes that existed. So even in death, he's just so eloquent. And even with his sickness, and he has, he possessed such a humility for him to have have accomplished everything that he's accomplished. He possessed such a humility, but he talks about his cancer. And he's, he said with blunt honesty, my cancer said, you're not a star. You're a human being, vulnerable like the rest. My whole existence up until that point had been based on the mantra, I will be better. I will be better. I am better. Now this life-threatening disease demanded that I face the hypocrisy of that charade. And then this year, on January 6th, at the age of 94, he passed away. Yeah. I mean, rest in power, Mm -hmm. brother. You paved the way, and you... You, you finished your assignment. You made a better world. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. You can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we are talking about modern day convict slavery. We'll leave you with this quote from Booker T. Washington. A lie doesn't become truth. Wrong doesn't become right. And evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority.